This is a Federal News Network podcast. More than 50 special agents with the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service joined the surge of first responders who rushed to the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. In the days and weeks that followed, they supported emergency workers and federal colleagues at Ground Zero. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with two of them, Diplomatic Security Service Supervisory Special Agent Christopher Gu and, the voice you'll hear first, the Assistant Special Agent in charge of the New York Field Office of Diplomatic Security, Elizabeth McAleer. So I got to the office. Uh, I remember it was a gorgeous morning. I was sitting at my desk at 26 Federal Plaza, which is the biggest, largest federal building in New York City. We actually had the television on, and we all ran in the conference room, all the agents who were there that morning, and... We, were, we watched the plane and uh, immediately said, hey, this is this is a terrorist attack. We need to we need to evacuate. It wasn't really that many people in the office at the time. I, I would say maybe 20 of us, maybe less. And we picked a location on the streets of Manhattan on Church Street. We were going to have a muster location. We told everybody to grab your your gear, your radios, your weapons, everything you had, evacuate the building. Uh, we told everybody to go down the flight of stairs, don't go in the elevator. We were on the 34th floor, so that was a, a long hike down. Again, we picked this location on, on Church Street to have a muster location just to do accountability. Because back then, obviously, there was no smartphones. So we all got down to uh, Church Street. We did an accountability check, make sure everybody was there. And then we figured out who was missing. And then at that point, the uh, South Tower collapsed. And we watched it. And we were we were very close to it. And as we were watching it, I remember this like it was yesterday. It, it felt like it didn't seem like the building was imploding. It felt like the building was coming towards us. And like I said, we weren't many blocks away and people just started running north. And when they started running north, they were just pointing to the, the buildings collapsing. But it, it was so surreal. There was nobody was screaming. Just mouths were open. Um, and then people were just falling all over the place. We were picking people up. People were crying in the street. The the smoke and the the dust and the debris and the were just you know coming towards us, and it was absolutely horrific, a horrific experience to see that happen. Everybody was making their way down thirty four flights of stairs. People were scared. Some people you could tell they're they're nervous. They didn't know what was going on. We try to make some light jokes, but. We were nervous. And then when we arrived on the street level, the streets were crowded with people. I tried to call my parents, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, and uh, there was no cell signal at all. I learned later on the the towers uh, on top of World Trade Center, of course, they were all knocked out. And uh, so we were told, okay, let's assemble the corner of Church Street, which we made our way over. I think it was two blocks away. And I was standing there with my colleagues and other uh, pedestrians as well. We all gathered there just staring at these two giant buildings burning. Um, And then just constant emergency vehicles racing to a ground zero. You know, Liz and I are both New Yorkers. I grew up in that city. And I'm just thinking back that they tried to knock down these two buildings back in 93. and, And they failed. And they attempted again. And they're going to fail again. These two buildings are still standing. We're going to rebuild. And I remember just turning my back toward the building for a brief second. And this lady next to me, she said, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I turned around. And that's when the first tower collapsed. It was just coming down like it was slow motion. 
just coming down. And I said, oh, my God, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. After that, um, you know, uh, one of the uh, assistant agent, special agent in charge, went down to ground zero and tried to find out what we can do to, to help. And she was told, you know, not at this moment. So she raced back to us and the decision was made that all the agents going to return home and be placed on standby. And will be called to volunteer ground zero to assist. It's a very simple question, but what happened next? Where did things proceed from there? And to maybe broaden out that question a little bit more, what steps did diplomatic security take in that immediate aftermath after the the towers fell, or at least after the first tower fell? So immediately when we found out that there was nothing we could do at that moment, I started walking north and we had our, we were preparing for the United Nations General Assembly. So we had our command post set up at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Grand Central Station. So I walked to the, to the Grand Hyatt. And at that point, I was told once I got to the command post that, uh, and that was, that took about an hour. It was a little bit of a, a walk. I was told that the Secretary of State's two daughters who lived in Manhattan at the time, Colin Powell's children, adult children, needed to be secured. So I had to go back downtown to get um, some armored vehicles. And I wound up picking up one of uh, Colin Powell's children and at work and then bringing her to a safe haven. And another agent picked up his other daughter and brought her to the same safe haven. For me, then the next day, we were deployed to assist FEMA. So we got our Suburbans and I started driving around FEMA employees to ground zero as they were installing lights. Because at that point, it was still a, um, a recovery, a rescue mission. So they wanted 24-7 workers at the site. So they were putting up lights. So I was driving FEMA around, assisting them. I couldn't really put up the lights. I didn't know how, but I was at least driving them around with their equipment. And I did that for the next uh, few days. How long were you both in this state of, I guess you could say, emergency response, you know, uh, in terms of either responding to Ground Zero or or just being in this, you know, heightened state of responding to the immediate aftermath. How long, roughly, would you say you guys were operating under those conditions until, you know, I don't want to say things got back to normal because things, I guess, never really did get back to normal, but how long a period was that? For me personally, the heightened state continued all the way to the end of the UN General Assembly that year. I think the UN General Assembly uh, finally took place in December. And for that event, I was the uh, advance agent, one of the advance agents for the UN complex. So there's a lot of advance work, preparation work involved. So after uh, my week of service at Ground Zero, well, New York field office started to shift agents to focus more towards a UN General Assembly. I think at one point, New York City, United States, was still trying to figure out whether a General Assembly should take place. There were a lot of discussion within the UN headquarters, and the ultimately decision was, we were not going to allow the terrorists to win. We're going to have a General Assembly. But the foreign dignitaries started to arrive before the, the Assembly formally started. So they all want to come and tour Ground Zero and visit one of the fire stations and to pay their respect and show their appreciation. 
And so we were running details, protective details on, on these visiting dignitaries. And we visited so many fire stations. We had our command post running for at least six weeks. And then we, we took turns, as Chris said, you know, go, going back down there, working down there, uh, doing everything that needed to be done from transporting emergency workers to transporting supplies, moving evidence around, everything Chris said. But I believe we had our command post for about six weeks. And then we also continued the protection detail of the Secretary of State's adult children in New York for a, a while. But as far as the heightened state, that that really never that never left us. Elizabeth McAleer, the assistant special agent in charge of the New York Field Office of Diplomatic Security for the State Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You also heard from Christopher Gu, a supervisory special agent in 2001. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com and search a Tuesday like no other. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, 
We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. Uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. 
and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zell. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.